welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. In fact, episode 53 of the Proper Mental Podcast. And um, if you're listening to this as it comes out, then I hope you've had a wonderful Christmas. And if you haven't, I hope that you're okay. We're currently in that weird time, right, where Christmas has just gone, Boxing Day's gone. It's not quite New Year yet. Everyone's kind of not sure what day it is, what time it is, still eating far too much nonsense. It's a bit of a weird time. And I'm really chuffed that this particular episode has worked out that it drops in this time. So I don't really plan when they come out. I put them out in the order that I record them. This is a a great episode to be out at this time because my guest is Catherine Benfield, who is an OCD advocate and a mental health campaigner. She's a writer, a blogger and a public speaker. And Caff has got such a nice vibe. She's so upbeat. She's so positive. She's really funny and her vibe is just really, really um, infectious. And I had such a great time chatting to her. And I think it's just the perfect conversation to like land in the middle of these quite quite strange week when we might need a bit of a, um, a bit of positivity and a bit of a pick me up. But this episode is all about OCD. We talk a lot about all aspects of OCD, but particularly perinatal OCD, because that's kind of CAF's area of expertise. But we, um, yeah, we just get into it, really. We chat about CAF's journey and her life with OCD. She wasn't diagnosed until she was about 32. And it's one of those that comes up on this podcast a lot, where people get diagnosed as an adult and then look back at their childhood and go, ah, now everything just makes sense. So we chat about that, we chat about diagnosis, we chat about about what OCD is, because a lot of people don't really understand it. I think even people in the mental health community or people that talk a lot about mental health and mental illness don't really understand the full extent of OCD. Um, And I, you know, I didn't, to be honest. And it was great to have CAF kind of guide me through it. So we talk about what OCD is. We talk about what it's not. We talk about intrusive thoughts. We talk about recovery. Um, One thing I absolutely love about all CAF's writing and CAF's advocacy work is that there's a really strong focus on recovery. So there's all the lived experience stuff there. There's all the relatable stories there. But the real strong theme is all these ideas around recovery. And I just think that's so important. You know, raising awareness will always be important. There'll always be a need for it. But once we've raised awareness, what's then? You know, what happens then? Once we're all aware and we've heard a relatable story, then what do we do about it? You know, and there needs to be things to guide people through that as well. And that's exactly what CAF does. And it's brilliant. Every episode that I've done, I've got on with everyone really, really well. And I've met some lovely people and some people that I now consider to be my friends. But every now and again, there's an episode where the person I'm talking to, we just seem to hit it off. And um, I felt like that with CAF, you know, before we even pressed record, we were having a laugh and we were chatting. And it just meant we could just jump straight into this conversation. And it was so easy. And it was a lot of fun. 
And I always think that's a strange thing to say when you're talking about mental illness. But it was. And I hope you get that from it as well. I highly recommend Kath's blog if you want to go and uh, learn a bit more about what she's up to and learn more about OCD. You can find that at tamingolivia.com. And if you'd like to follow her on social media, it's at Catherine underscore Benfield. And at the moment, she's working on a very, very exciting project that she's posting a lot about on social media. I'm not going to tell you what it is here because we chat about it in the episode. But if you follow on socials, then you'll get sort of an inside look at something really cool that she's up to at the moment. So there you go. Um, If you want to support this podcast, there's loads of ways that you can do it. They're all in the episode notes. The most important one and the easiest one is to subscribe, download, rate, review, all that good stuff. It really does make a difference. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so via the website, links in the episode note, or at Proper Mental Podcast on all social media platforms. This intro's gone on long enough. So here we are. This is episode 53 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Catherine Benfield. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. I'm all right to call it. I've been calling you Kath. I tend to over familiarize with people. Is that all right? No, <laughs> loads of people call me Kat as well. Loads of people call me Kat. So you're very welcome to call me whatever you want. Within oh, cool. reason. Yeah. <laughs> By the end, I'll have shortened it to something else. That's just something, it's a habit I, right. I have. <laughs> um, okay. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest today is Catherine Benfield. How are you, mate? I'm all right, thank you. I'm really good. How are you? I'm really good, mate. I'm really good. Thank you so much for uh, for joining me. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I'm going to start with, it's a big question, Kath, I'm going to start with, and I can't work out how to make it a smaller one. But I've, been, doing, I've been reading up about um, OCD, like since I've been starting the podcast, really, to try and just kind of educate myself. And there's so much in that space, in that community that I had no no idea of at all. And in reading, doing the research for this episode, which has mostly been via your your website and your posts, um, there's even more stuff that I didn't even know about. But you must get asked all the time, what is OCD? Mm. Can you sum that? Is it possible? Do you have a soundbite to sum that up? Or is that too big a, too big a question I... to start with? <laughs> I have spent five years of advocacy trying to come up with a soundbite that uh, can very quickly use to explain. And I think if I had it, it'd be worth millions and billions and billions of pounds because it would just be so helpful. And the fact that we don't have one is really annoying. But I think basically you need to know that it is an anxiety disorder. It is to do with um, the real dislike of uncertainty. So you have obsessions, things like doubts, and they can be bodily sensations, intrusive thoughts. And um, that's just generalised anxiety, really. But with OCD, you tend to have compulsions, which is where you feel that you have to, in order to stay safe and in order to stop this worry happening, you carry them out. And there can literally, where it gets so confusing is that there can be as many different versions of OCD as there are people who have OCD. You know, no one's got exactly the same thing. It is just, it, it's very root, and I can go into this in more detail in a minute, but it's very root. It is an intolerance to uncertainty. It is a need for certainty, and a lot of life is uncertain. So yeah. it is, it's wanting that and doing 
as much as you can to try to get it to feel safe. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, yeah, the, I mean, like you say, life is uncertain, right? So that's got to really like play on those um, on those thoughts and those feelings and those emotions. That's um, crikey. That's a lot to think about, isn't it? Did um, when did this stuff start to manifest for you, mate? Did it do you remember it showing up or kind of was it always there? No, I think it was always there. So an, an important thing to know about OCD, and this is a thing that people don't understand as well, is that it's almost completely possible to have OCD without ever seeing an outward sign. So, you know, you'll tend to find if you spend long in OCD advocacy, people go, yeah, it's not just about washing your hands and flicking switches. It is a lot of that, but it's also a lot about hidden stuff. So um, for me... Uh, I really just it just took over my childhood and I absolutely did not know what it was so OCD tends to attack the things we love most um, it's because we we can't handle the uncertainty around something bad happening to our family or or ourselves um, because by her, you know by something hurting us it would hurt our family you know so um, I grew up with a lot of obsessions about harm coming to my family and the so I would get intrusive thoughts about my you know, mum getting hurt in the car crash on the way home from work. And the way I dealt with that anxiety was the compulsion of kind of checking. I used to sit at the window and wait for her to come home. And that kind of manifested the whole way through my childhood and it changed a lot. And that's one of the things that's so hard about OCD is it's hard to nick. You, you change. So as I got older, I kind of stopped worrying about, you know, I stopped waiting at the window and then I actually started wandering the streets as I was allowed to out I started like wandering the streets looking for her you know and so you know it was just it it sounds ridiculous and I suppose to anyone else I just looked like I was going for wanderers as a teenager because I was really good at hiding it but it was that doubt of something happening to someone that I loved and that was there pretty much the whole way through my childhood um when we had cats it attached itself to the cats you know so it kind of it's all just about wanting the certainty that your loved ones are going to be okay and that nothing bad is going to happen to them and the thing with the compulsions as well is that like some of them make sense in a way it makes sense to check that you turned your cooker off at night but not 20 times you know and and some of the other ones as well you know people get things like light switches or um you know tapping or saying things in their minds you know they are doing it to stop the anxiety but they don't necessarily make logical sense as a way of dealing with it you know so um that was the whole way through my childhood um I went through phases of getting a little bit better but um I didn't get a diagnosis until I was 32 after I'd had my son and by that point I was really poorly but I mean my story is not unusual so most people remember getting it um, if it wasn't a big life event that triggered it, it, they remember getting it around the age of five, six, and then it kind of taking a long time to recognise it. You know, I used to spend about four hours going to bed. I had a night routine where I had to go around and check stuff. And if it didn't work out, I had to start again. And almost everyone I speak to has something like that in childhood as well. Wow. I think as well, when these things are, when, when they're thoughts you know when it's in our own head it's so easy to trust these things isn't it and and the reason I asked kind of if it you know if you're aware of it I know from like myself um, I've never suffered with OCD but I have had my own problems with mental health and mental illness and I have only found out through years of therapy as an adult how long some of these things were going on but at the time I thought they were part of my personality 
You know, so I didn't think yes. I'm ill. I thought I'm weird. I'm it's just me. I must hide this from everybody and just internalized yes. it. But when we do that, then we we just think it's us, don't we? We don't realize that it's an illness that's got control. And it sounds like that was a lot very similar in, in your story. Um, before your yeah, diagnosis. absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it was the eighties. So people were like, "Oh, she's a bit highly strung. Oh, she likes going off by herself. Or oh, what's she doing up there?" You know, I was in the loft as a kid, so you could hear me. Must have heard me wandering around and stuff. But you know, you didn't kind of go like we would now and go, "Is everything all right? Is anything wrong at the school? Do you think maybe you'd like to have a GP appointment? Should we work through this book on you know self, you know, well-being and stuff, which we do with our children very openly now." Um, but like I, I wasn't, it wasn't until I was about 32 that I learned that my thoughts meant nothing. <laughs> 32 years old, 32 years old. And that's particularly important for OCD because you get this need for certainty. I mean, we all get these, I talk a lot about these, but we all get these weird intrusive thoughts and also intrusive urges like impulses. So like everyone's familiar with that feeling that if someone walks past you with a tray of glasses, you suddenly, this little evil voice goes, go on, whack it. Or, you know, <laughs> everyone's familiar with that weird feeling of being on a platform and then getting that weird impulse for a second to jump, you know, when a train's coming off from somewhere high. This is all normal stuff. But for someone with OCD who can't stand that uncertainty, they're like, what? Do, do I want to kill myself? What's that saying about me? Or if you get a weird urge to kind of like push someone else for a second, it's like, oh, I'm a monster. You know, so the thing with OCD is that where other people can kind of get this weird feeling or this impulse or this thought. And, you know, if it's particularly harsh, it might bother them for a day or, or most people laugh it off. For someone with OCD, that could absolutely cripple them. That could, you know, cause mental health crisis and they could get very poorly. So that's, that's what happened to me after having my son. And to find out that actually everyone got intrusive thoughts or people who are admitted to them anyway, everyone gets these kind of weird taboo intrusive thoughts that go completely against their value and mean nothing. And I was 32. I'd gone through pretty much 28 years of thinking that everything I thought defined me and that I wanted to think those things and that I was a monster you know and just that kind of knowledge is stuff that we should be teaching primary kids you're not your yeah. thoughts yeah <laughs> you know? yeah definitely and that it, that kind of like shines a light on society as a whole because like you say all human beings have these weird thoughts heaven forbid we should admit that we actually thought something we're so worried about being seen as like a psychopath or a crazy person or all this that we don't say these things so if someone is then struggling with that on a deeper level, you know, from an mm. illness perspective, it makes it even harder, doesn't it? Because you're like, no one else is, no one else has ever had these thoughts. It must yes. be me. It must be me. When, like you say, in, in reality, we all have these like just things that pop out of nowhere, but it's easy for people who aren't ill to just kind of go, what was that? And just, whoomph, just brush it. And then you forget, you forget you've ever thought it, but yeah, it's a very human, human trait. And like you say, you are not it your is. thoughts, right? No, absolutely, absolutely. And another like trap that OCD sets for you is like, well, you know, I eventually got to the point where I was able to talk to these with my husband. And he was like, yeah, I had this really strange thought once about kicking you in the stomach when you were pregnant. And he, and he just shrugged it off. And I was like, you what? <laughs> how, how, it wasn't that he'd had it, because I kind of understood that people got them. But I was like, how did you shrug it off? That was the bit that amazed me. It wasn't that he'd had that thought. It was that he'd then shrugged it off. Because if that was me, I would have been like, you know, avoiding whoever it was forever and um yeah he just the OCD because you were so worried about it it then makes you think there's a reason mm. it's like well then he's managed to shrug that off 
Someone else has told me that they had the urge to jump with their kid in their arms off this big tower once on a human platform in Stratford. But none of them have been bothered, but I am. So maybe that signals an intent, you know? So it, OCD, if there is a tiny gap to creep into to cause doubt, it will get in there, you know? And as soon as you get that kind of reassurance of actually, oh, no, I'm not the only one, OCD will go, but... <laughs> hang on a minute and it will try to find something just continue to just twist it and twist it to make it yes. make it more difficult yeah yeah so yeah. when you got your diagnosis at, at 32 did suddenly a lot of things just kind of make sense did it a lot of uh... oh, it was absolutely ridiculous yes yeah, so my OCD had changed when I had my son and I started getting really horrible intrusive thoughts about harm coming to him and it was like really serious and I believed them I was like oh my god someone's gonna hurt him someone's gonna kill him and then when that stopped annoying me, it was kind of like, or upsetting me, it was like, oh, maybe you will. Maybe you'll do it by accident. Maybe you'll do it on purpose. So by the time I actually went to go and see someone, I was actually so poorly, I wasn't going for help. I was telling them because I believed my thoughts that I needed removing. So I went to my GP and I was like, you need to put me somewhere. It's either a prison or it is a hospital, a secure hospital, but you need to put me somewhere. And that's when the very long road to recovery came. Because when you were a new mum, you get a lot of other diagnoses, you know, they're very keen to kind of say, oh, maybe it's postpartum depression or baby blues. Um, postpartum psychosis is really doing well now, awareness-wise. Of course, if you go, they go, I think I'm going to hurt my son. You know, they're, they, that's one of the first things they go to. So it was a long route. So by the time I actually got in front of a therapist who understood CBT, I was expecting her to press the kind of emergency button under the desk and just whisk me away somewhere, like the army was going to come in and get me. And I truly believe that. I did not think I'd be walking out of that meeting to go back home. And I did. Um, but, yeah, when I found out about that, I was absolutely amazed. I just couldn't believe that everything that I'd gone through and all of those thoughts were OCD you know I kind of got an idea because of the checking as a teenager that I had OCD because that's the bit that they talked about those stereotypical symptoms but that other stuff about intrusive faults and you know all the rest of it god that was awful and I did not know that was anything to do with OCD again it's not the thoughts it's the reaction to the thoughts and that's the OCD it's the reaction and what you do with that thought and what you think it means so it was amazing I mean when I found out um I was so poorly that although it was amazing and of course the nature of OCD straight away it starts going yeah but <laughs> yeah but well they might not be a very good therapist oh they might not know what they're doing or maybe I'm a liar maybe I'm a psychopath maybe I'm really good at hiding my symptoms you know so you get relief for a little while and then it kind of tries to wheedle its way in another way but my therapist was absolutely incredible absolutely incredible and we did two lots of 20 weeks of really intense therapy including exposures which are glorious you have to like force yourself to go and stand on a busy platform with your children and deliberately bring on thoughts that you really don't want to be doing but you you have to face your fears and how are you ever going to do that unless you do them yeah yeah crikey that's intense right that's you know I suppose just to jump back um a little bit if you, you, you're having these these thoughts and these feelings vocalizing them for the first time to a therapist that must have been massive because when we're hiding these things when we feel all this shame about these thoughts when we think it's us our personality we are broken and then you have to vocalize that. That's um, 
that's heavy, right? To have to come out and say something. And I would guess that's what that's why a lot of people maybe don't go and get the help that they need, mm. that they deserve, because they can't, they don't want to vocalize some of these dark things to another human being. You're absolutely right. And this is probably one of the most like important conversations that we will have, you know, during this meeting. Um, so I, when I went to go and see my GP, the my words when I walked in were literally, I'm unsafe, I'm going to hurt my son, you need to remove me from him. And I've always had the same GP. And, you know, I thought I was pretty normal. And he turned around and he was like, Catherine, how many times have you come in here with really bad anxiety? You know, and it's like, it's anxiety. Now, I was lucky that that was his reaction because for others, it may not have been. Um, I had an awful, awful experience with midwives. I am not blaming them. But when I first got poorly, and I'm, I'm telling these, they sound like horror stories, but it's important to realise that horror stories can have happy endings, you know, and there are ways that we can talk to people um, and get help safely. So I'll go on to that when I finish this. But when I first spoke to my midwife, so I first got really poorly. I had my first intuitive thought about harming my little boy when he was two weeks old. And I rang up my midwife and I was like, you have to come around. There's something wrong with me. I think I've got postnatal depression which was the only thing I knew existed you know and um they came round and they were really like look if if you go down this route we're gonna have to you know put you on the put your child on the at-risk register we're gonna have to get social services involved and it was terrifying it was absolutely terrifying and I remember at that point going no I will never talk to someone again I've never talked to anyone again. I'll just live like this. And that's why then it took me so long to, despite what the doctor said, it was anxiety. What the midwife just said proved to me it wasn't. Um, I then kind of faked and backed my way out of it with this really good acting spiel that I was just very tired. And um, it then took a long time for me to go and get help. But it was that feeling. By the time I got in front of a therapist, I was so defeated that I would have said anything to just make it go away. So I had nothing to lose by that point. And so I walked in to tell them the truth. And again, I don't actually think it was because I wanted help. I think it's because I hadn't thought the doctor had listened to me properly <laughs> and that I actually was really dangerous and that I wanted to get it all out. I wanted to confess. That's a massive part of OCD, confessing. And uh, I wanted them to just tell me that I was right, I was insane and they were going to lock me up. So that died, opening up to that, I still sometimes keeps me up at night. I remember that feeling of what it was like. And that was like eight years ago, you know, and it was the hardest moment of my life. And 10 minutes later, it was the best because I suddenly realised that I had OCD. But I think what we absolutely have to do when there's things that you can do when you go to look for help. I mean, I'm not a professional. I must make that very clear. But I've worked for a long time alongside Maternal OCD, which is an amazing charity for new mothers. And they also help with new dads too. And OCD Action, OCD UK, we all tend to say the same thing. So if you are worried about the nature of your intrusive fault and you're worried that someone, I mean, very often people who are affected by this are caring, in caring professions because it's that personality types, teachers, doctors, physiotherapists, people who, because they're the ones who've got these massive hearts and often massive hearts have the odd anxiety issue, you know, because you care so much. So um, they, if you're worried about going and telling a medical professional 
you do not have to say the exact nature of your thoughts to them or the exact nature of your symptoms to them and you can interview them so now if it was me going I'd be like what do you know about OCD what do you know about the role of OCD uh, you know intrusive thoughts in OCD what do you know about the role of intrusive impulses in OCD because people don't know what OCD is we're still getting people doctors medical professionals getting OCD wrong and misdiagnosing people with OCD or missing it completely when people walk in blatantly in a mental health crisis caused by OCD it's getting better but we're not there yet so I would absolutely not explain some of the more um, challenging to explain and taboo intrusive thoughts just in front of a general medical professional so I would go in and I would say I've got OCD is affecting my life day to day I cannot function I want you to pass me on to a specialist someone is there someone in this GP office who um who understands OCD have you got a mental health specialist here what do they know about OCD and then you tell them or you wait until you're in front of an OCD specialist or if you go to A&E and you're in crisis then you ask to talk to the psychotherapist or psychologist uh, psychiatrist who understands OCD so, and that's where having an advocate or a family member who also understands it or a friend, because if you're beyond the point of being able to argue for your own treatment properly, they can do it for you. Yeah. So if you are dealing with these kind of intrusive thoughts, impulses, and you're frightened, it doesn't, it's understandable, <laughs> but it doesn't mean that you don't go to talk to someone. And I've got to say, OCD Action, OCD UK, I love them. They're the best charities on the planet and they will help you. They'll give you an advocate to help you talk to your medical professional. They'll give you resources to take into your GP. And so it's protecting you whilst getting the help that you need because they're rarer now, but the odd horror story does still come through. That doesn't mean that we don't get help, but it just means that we follow steps to make sure we're safe while we're doing it, you know? Yeah, gosh, that's wonderful. That's really, really, what a lovely way to look at it. You know, I that's so like, I don't know, empowering, you know, and mm. sometimes with mental illness, it it takes away our, our control. We feel like we have no control of our thoughts, our feelings, our bodies, the world around us. Mm. And, you know, we, with awareness is great. There'll always be a need for awareness. And part of raising awareness is encouraging people to talk and something. And I say this so much on this podcast. We never really talk about how hard it is to talk. We tell people yeah. to talk. And when I was poorly, if you'd have said to me, you should talk, I'd have said, it's all right for you, Catherine. I'm there. <laughs> you know, talk to who? Talk to how? What words? All that we, we don't know. But if you can, like you just described then, take control of that situation to some extent and make sure that you are in a safe space rather than just talking and hope that the space you're talking into is safe. You can have that yes. element of control to to find that that space to hold you when you start start to pick to start to speak. Um, that's that's wonderful. That's really really wonderful. And um, yeah, I think people listening that will hopefully give them a lot of a lot to think about. And I love that you mentioned those charities as well because um, with any mental illness, when we're struggling, the first thing we do pop it into Google, and it's all the same ones that come up. You know, and the ones that come up are amazing. They do wonderful work, but we don't always realize. I certainly never realized the amount of different types of support that were out there when I needed them because I just knew about the stereotypical, yeah. you know, the same top five Google search results that I didn't feel were applicable to me at that time. So it's just wonderful that we can have like those sorts of charities 
charities out there, right? Just um, just helping people, basically. No, yeah. they're absolutely brilliant. And also, you know, that top five, it's hit and miss whether you get someone who properly understands the way OCD works, you know, because it's the, it is the last illness that is just so ridiculously misunderstood, yet being so kind of widely spoken about, you know? So these guys, I mean... They're used to hearing it all, you know. I mean, I can guarantee you that because I've told them the nature of my intuitive thoughts. See, they say you can't, you can't scare these people. <laughs> but they have things, pieces of paper you can print out. I'm a big advocate for using well you to help not say well you. So when you're feeling good, you get all those resources in place. You know, you get all those resources there. You get your person who understands OCD, and then when you do, literally have no energy to do anything other than just say, "Help me." you've got that stuff there and they're ready to do it for you, you know, or that piece of paper, you go see a doctor and you go, there, there you go, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, I love that as well. What a wonderful phrase. That's, um, that's really lovely. Yeah. So you've, um, you've got your diagnosis, you've started to talk, you, you've got this kind of weight off your chest. How do you start to rebuild from there? It was incredibly difficult because um, I, by that point, just pretty much hated myself. You know, I uh, this time when society in Hollywood tells you that I should be dancing in a field of flowers with my newborn, with singing birds all around me, I was an absolute mess. I mean, I had spent a while, I'd spent a while suicidal, I'd say. I think I'd actually got to that point and I hadn't eaten, I wasn't sleeping. So it wasn't just my mental health and OCD. It was depression. It was the way I saw myself. It was my self-esteem, just hit rock bottom. Physically, I was not in good health. And so it had to be this very, 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 very slow build, like a puzzle. A tiny bit went in from therapy, a tiny bit of dinner was eaten, you know, and then I managed to walk a bit further. And then it just became this thing where very slowly, nothing happened quickly. It really didn't Um I started to rebuild everything. Uh, I made my therapy work everything. You know, it was like I had to sit there doing my exposures. I had to, which were terrifying, by the way. And it just, um, I'd left my job. I'm a primary school teacher and I'd left my job, which I don't think actually really helped me because it gave me way too long with my brain. (laughs) Um, But I, yeah, I just slowly started to rebuild I went on to medication, which I know isn't for everybody, but I think I'd reached the point where I couldn't access anything without it. You know, I needed it for my therapy. Um, that was a discussion I had with my medical professional over and over again. Um, and yeah, it was just to slowly start to rebuild. I had to do the most enormous amount of self-esteem work, had to keep this diary um, of like, I mean, I've been shut away from the world for ages, so I wasn't like, there was nothing there boosting my self-esteem. You know, as a mother anyway, you're cut off when you've got a newborn, but it was like, well, what can I say I've done? I'd be like, oh, I tidied the kitchen well. And my therapist was like, yes, what does that show you about you? And I was like, well, I put in an effort when I didn't want to. She was like, exactly. So I had to keep this diary of things like, and it was so shitty. It's like, today I posted a bill. And it was like, yeah, but what does that show you? It shows that you're organised. It shows that you're taking responsibility even though you're going through a tough time it shows that you actually got motivated to go out and do it so I had to really pluck out these tiny little things to start boosting me and then gradually they got bigger I was like oh I managed to walk around the forest today oh I actually met someone for a cup of tea you know so that that 
really working on me was the start of me getting much better. Yeah. You talk about um, in your in your blogs and your posts and stuff like that. You talk a lot about self-esteem, about self-love. Mm. And it's something I really love about your work is when I started speaking to people for this podcast, I would talk a lot about the very stereotypical things that we know are good for mental well-being, like um, exercise, yoga, meditation, all these things. And they're all wonderful. I use a lot of them myself. Mm. Through speaking to a lot of people, I found about so much other stuff that's really, really important for our brains, for our heads, for our just general overall well-being. And you talk about a lot of them, stuff like self-esteem, self-love, um, compassion, creativity. That's another one that doesn't mm. get, get mentioned enough, you know, and so many when we're ill and it doesn't matter what that illness is. But when we're mental ill, the first person you turn to is yourself. Um, you turn on mm. as yourself, right? You just. Yes. Just, yeah. You just the hatred floods, floods inward. And that working on that self-esteem, that must be a really. Um, yeah. A really big thing to to start to do it's hard when you don't love yourself to learn how it's bloody hard I know that <laughs> firsthand <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Tougher. yeah. Mm. it is and when you've had I mean generally speaking my my self-esteem had never been great anyway just kind of like anxiety and social anxiety and stuff but when you've spent you know a year of your life feeling like you at any moment could turn around and hurt the most important thing to you and that you were unsafe as a person and that you shouldn't be out among general community, the general community because you were, you were a risk, you know, to go from being a teacher, someone much loved in a community and well-respected to suddenly being in this flat with a newborn, just feeling like the devil, you know, like a monster, like someone who hadn't just hadn't been found out yet what that does to your self-esteem is just unbelievable. You know, you're not even at no self-esteem. You're now into proper self-hatred, you know. And, and, and the thing that I didn't realise as well was that things like self-compassion, it's got to be learned. I always had this really unhelpful belief that actually I should have been born with that. You know, any normal person would have been born with that. It's like, no, I've had to sit there doing worksheets that tell me how brilliant I am. I've had to stick post-its up around my house that I can see them when I'm cooking. And, you know like really really work on it like a muscle to build that up and now it's natural you know if I make mistakes now I don't really beat myself up about them I just kind of go well you know what I was trying my best at the time blimey so that OCD recovery has helped me in other areas you know yeah. as well as that that's really common with recovery isn't it that it kind of it, it, it improves other areas you know yeah, other areas yes. of of life and how you think and yeah yeah that's always been a, a really interesting to me and the whole yeah learning how to how to love ourselves because society frowns on that right so how many people achieve something really cool really interesting really fascinating and they'll start telling you about it by saying oh I don't mean to boast but so yes. I, won't, I won't think you're boasting I think that's incredible and shout about it from the rooftops please you know but we're just we're designed anyway just before mental illness comes into it we're kind of designed to play things down be humble you know not to talk ourselves up and then yeah, yeah. and then when we're ill that sort of house of cards just like you say just collapse yeah that is the perfect description you know you I work with a lot of um American based kind of therapists and advocates at the moment and the way they talk about feeling grateful and proud and and things you know I used to I was in awe of that at first and I actually just think that's such a helpful way of describing the way they're feeling you know they will openly say I feel proud of myself look what I did today 
And, you know, when the old Britain me would be like, oh, my goodness, look at them. You know, we mustn't say things like that about ourselves. And now like, it's just so freeing and so wonderful. I mean, we work really hard and um, we've overcome the most unbelievable psychological mountains. We should be proud of what we're doing now. You know, it just takes a while for us Brits to get the hang of saying it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. My wife and I always do it with our with our kids, you know, if they um, get a certificate at school or do a really good drawing or something like that. We're always we always trying to say, are you proud of yourself? Because it doesn't yeah. you say, I'll be proud of you no matter what. But it doesn't matter if I'm proud of you, if you're proud of yourself, you know, and try and instill that because that's what and I speak the same way to myself. I think, oh, yeah, do you know what? I am bloody proud of myself today. You know, I'm, I'm chuffed to bits and it feels nice, doesn't it? It does feel it does. nice. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it's definitely. Brilliant. Um, I wanted to ask um, a little bit about your husband, Pete, as well, Kath, if that's all right. Go for it. Because um, obviously, because you uh, chat about him a bit on your website and he helped you come up with the character of Olivia, who I'm sure we're going to get, we're sure we're going to get to in a, in a moment as well. But something that I think is really important in mental illness is we really, really focus on the person that's directly affected by it. Um, but it does have big implications on, on the people in our lives, on the people that we love, on the people that love us and things like that. You know, I've, I talk about my wife a lot on this podcast because when I was ill, it massively affected her. And yes. when we've we've done an episode about that, Kim and I, and it's one of the biggest responses that we've had by so many people who have never been mentally ill, have never struggled with their mental health, but they know someone who has, you know? And I, I yes. just, how, how was that for for Pete to kind of watch you go through these things and try and support you. But I'm assuming he probably felt quite helpless at the same, same time. It's a very individual journey, isn't it? Trying to get well, <laughs> we have to rely on people, yes. but still do it all ourselves. It's very, very complicated like that. Yeah. And again, it's a brilliant way of describing it. Like uh, Pete is, I mean, you know, that stereotypical strong and silent type. That is what Pete has always been. He's been, he has got this built-in calm network. And so for a long time, I didn't think he was particularly, well, you know, badly affected by it. I, I thought that he, like, he kind of, it was almost like an activation button. You know, if I went downhill, he suddenly went zing, and up he came, you know, managing everything. And and he never really wanted to talk about that or anything. But over the years, and now, you know, it's, it's the biggest part of a decade has gone since then. And I really know now, you know, we've talked about it since then. I really know the impact that it has on him. I mean, like, when I, I remember once he walked into the kitchen and I was standing in my dressing gown and I must have looked awful. I was so anxious I couldn't even stand up properly. And I remember seeing the fright in his eyes of this woman that he knew and loved. And, the, you know, I was a shell of myself. I just... God, I just, I think I just wanted to die. And I think he could see that. I think he could see that. And so that whole kind of, I don't know how that must have been for him. I mean, he never, ever told me he didn't want to add. And I know now that he didn't tell me because he didn't want to add to what I was going through. But what he must have been through, one, from watching me, also from telling family, you know, we, we had this, you know, we were kind of half hiding stuff. We didn't know what to tell anyone. I mean, you turn around and go, oh, yeah, she's got... You know, she's just feeling a bit stressed because she wants to do a good job by a baby. It's very different than she's actually getting these weird intrusive thoughts about harming your grandson. Sorry about that. You know, how do you do that? And we, so we were kind of shut off in this, he was shut off in this horrible bubble with a newborn, <laughs> a woman who was probably as much work as a newborn, just slept less, 
Um, and it must have been absolutely horrible for him. Absolutely horrendous. He had to take leave from work, unpaid leave to look after me, like compassionate leave. Um, it must have just been absolute, absolute hell for him. And I, I mean, even now, sometimes I need him to do things for me or my general well-being, like actually kind of keeping me well. And this sounds so ridiculous. He snorts whenever he hears me talk about this. But my brain is so busy. Swear, I live four days to my to most people's every one. You know, it's constantly popping. I need naps. And he's like, oh, she goes again, the queen of naps. But I need it. Now, that's quite funny. But. The other side of that is that he's now having to take on more than he would do if I wasn't having these naps. You know, my self-care and my recovery work comes in and he has to pick up the, the slack elsewhere, you know. So I think he's got used to it. And whenever I ask him how on earth he puts up with me, he's just like, I love you. But I, I know how lucky I am and how resilient he has had to be, you know, because I don't know many people who would have been able to go through that like he did you know and our relationship has been I mean I've never had to worry that he won't be there at the end of the phone I've never had to worry that he's actually gonna get so sick and just bugger off you know which I wouldn't blame him because I have been really hard work over the years and you know so it just he has been incredible absolutely incredible but it has impacted him massively and I don't think I'll ever realize he'll never tell me I don't think I'll ever realize quite how much yeah, I relate to that so much, you know, so, so much. And um, I know from speaking to my wife at one point, like no one knew what was going on with me because I wasn't telling anyone. I was just getting, yeah. just behaving stranger and stranger and stranger. And she started to think it was her, you know, she started thinking I was unhappy with her, I was unhappy in our marriage. And um, I also really relate with, you know, the the level of self-care, you know, I'm a napper. I nap most days. I, I'm completely, <laughs> completely on board with the... Uh, <laughs> fully on board with naps um and um yeah just all the stuff that I have to do to be a good husband you know I have to put my mental health first or otherwise because when I didn't I wasn't particularly a a good husband but I I always (laughs) like to talk about it because I think a lot of people I was worried if I spoke up that it would be too much for her, too weird for her, too whatever. I don't know what I thought because she never said that. It was all self-stigma. It wasn't, it didn't come yeah. from her, right? But I never, I never said it because I thought it'd have too much of an impact on her. And then be in reality, by not saying it, actually had more of an impact on her. So I think yes. if, if anyone's listening and they're like, oh, I'm thinking these things, I'm having these behaviors and I don't want to say anything in case my, my partner or, you know, my friend or my cousin or whatever doesn't want to hear. I think it's always important to say that, you know, when people love you, they do, they, they, they stick with you eh? and they, um, and that they'll help, they'll be there. And it's important to, to ask them for that help. Absolutely. And if you don't tell them, they're left to guess. And very often guessing is worse than actually knowing the truth. You know, even if the truth is quite hard because you make up your own mind and that's awful. And also yeah. you empower them then if you tell them. They're just floating around wondering what on earth is going on if you don't. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So um, when does uh, the character of Olivia enter <laughs> enter the, the picture? It's like the... <laughs> I almost got you to introduce Olivia first because I thought we're going to yeah. talk to her. People are going to be wondering, who is this person? <laughs> who is this person? Yeah, okay. So um, Olivia... <laughs> When I was going through my recovery, like I was doing everything I needed to do, everything else I needed to do, and I hit a real sticking point. And that was that I just couldn't quite get the hang of this, you know, like just this 
there was an element of self-compassion that I couldn't get. I couldn't quite marry it up with these, the nature of these disturbing thoughts that I was having, you know, and I couldn't quite, couldn't quite nail the idea that I didn't want to have them. And I was struggling with self-compassion and working on my self-esteem a little bit and stuff, you know, so therapy hit a really good point. It did really well. And then I started looking into other options. I was like, okay, so I'm taking meds. I'm, doing therapy I'm doing my exposures I'm doing all my homework I was wondering if there was anything else and started looking into creativity and when I was doing that I started reading about how some people um externalize their OCD and that it helps them they kind of personify it into a separate character and people do it through poems or drawings and um I had a little go at that but what they always were were represented as being these horrible bullies you know they were always drawn as being these evil shadows with fangs in the dark and and it just I started I bought out the first Tame and Olivia actually and I started hearing from people and they were like oh my god my child's psychiatrist recommended doing that to my kids you know so there was like an eight-year-old absolutely tortured by OCD now being encouraged to imagine this evil spirit following them around as well kind of putting these horrible words and everything into their heads you know and the idea was to turn around and he went go away go away you you don't matter to me I'm bigger than you I'm braver than you and and I can see the argument but for me I just I was battered enough by everything I didn't need this horrible ghost thing or monster like chasing me around the place and one that I had to kind of fight you know I just I didn't have the energy for that fight and so I started taking that concept of externalizing. I was a primary school teacher. I had a young boy myself. And I thought, what about if we changed it? I was getting really into acceptance and commitment therapy, which is big in America. It's slowly coming over here. The idea of mindfulness and acceptance and self-love and all those kind of things. Um, again, it's still seen kind of airy-fairy over here, which is stupid because the amount of studies now that are coming out about it and saying how helpful it is is incredible. And um, so I thought, well, how about this character, instead of being a bully, is actually something I can empathise with. So I externalise the thoughts. The thoughts aren't me. This condition isn't me. It's a way of seeing myself as separate because, you know, I'd had OCD for so long, I didn't know where I ended and where I, or OCD began. So it was a way of me separating it. It was creative. It was fun. I designed it, my husband drew it, and I got to write about it, which helped me clear everything out in my head. And um, it was all about actually trying to show Olivia compassion. She was panicking. She was off on one. And it was about showing her compassion, understanding. It was about not judging. It was all the stuff that I was doing myself. And my hope was that it would help to teach me those skills. It would help me work that muscle. And I wasn't quite ready to do it to me, but I could do it to this little imaginary creature just as a strategy you know it wasn't like Roger Rabbit I didn't think I was walking around there all the time you know actually saying that the next piece of artwork is her with her eyes coming out on the stalks and she doesn't <laughs> look a lot like him but um yeah I just it was just something that I tried for myself I had no intention of bringing it out I had no intention of doing anything I wrote Meet Olivia just as a way of me doing it and me kind of bringing it out I showed someone in America just this woman I've been talking to that I met for a support group, she was like, it's absolutely incredible. You need to bring it out. And so absolutely shat myself. We, we created the website and the plan was that it just housed this one thing. It was like the meet Olivia and it was Pete's drawings. It showed how she can get triggered and how she can become ugly and crooked and, and in pain, but still deserve love, you know? And this one post went out 
and just went ridiculous. I mean, as viral as anything in the OCD community ever does. It's just like, I got emails everywhere. And I think like, I mean, this is a really long story, but it just grew ridiculously. It morphed. I had to leave it for about a year and a half to talk about perinatal OCD because no one's talking about that. And so as soon as the my story came out, I moved and shifted to move on to that. But that was incredible. I mean, I ended up meeting, um, being like nominated for awards and stuff. Like that. It was absolutely incredible. Um, but I then came back to Tame and Olivia. We're working really hard on that now as well. And so we bought a little iPod, a little iPad, sorry. Oh, I'm so retro. And um, we've now kind of started digitizing the animation because before it would take us three or four days to create even the, the easiest of things. And that was just not feasible. So we forked out on this little iPad and now a lot of the drawings are computerized and stuff. But it's it's doing really well. It's about kind of a lot, for a lot of us with OCD, we have a sticking point and that comes to self-compassion. We think, well, how can we be amazing people and deserve this self-love? if we think these things and so Tame and Olivia is about how to try and separate yourself and to practice the skills that will help you in the long run yeah. using creativity really I suppose that's the way of summing it up but the, the, the things that have grown from it have been absolutely ridiculous Tom I mean I daily I crack myself daily at the minute because there's just so many ridiculous things going on as a result of it but yeah she's we're building up the website we're going to start trying to work we're going to start making some little worksheets for, you know, just little bits to work on to help you build up your self-esteem and well-being. I've got a couple of amazing therapist friends who look over everything for me because I know how important it is to get it right. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of growing, growing yeah. all the time, which is amazing. That's it. Yeah, it's just like it seems to have like just connected with so many people, you know. And like one of the biggest things in mental health and mental illness is is relatability, right? Like when, yeah. when you feel alone, you feel like it's only you, and then suddenly someone has a way of explaining something or expressing something or talking about something. You think, oh my gosh, that's a bit of me. But my favorite word you use there is acceptance, because yes. I do. I I just think with with any anything in the mental health space if you try and fight it too hard it fights back you know yes. and you, it, it, it like it just when I first started really really focusing on on recovering and getting better that's how I treated it I, it was like a boxing match it's the only way I knew how right yes, and yes. I was like oh yeah, meditation right I'm gonna meditate yeah exactly exactly you wait i'm coming for you yeah, yeah. i just felt worse i've just it's felt exhausting. rubbish yeah um but yeah to to have that acceptance and that i suppose it does it give you a certain amount of like control over the uncontrollable calf to have this this thing yeah. like you say separate yourself from your thoughts and stuff like that yeah more, yes, it does. I mean, I fully understand now that I am not my thoughts. I can have any kind of random, weird, intrusive thought now, and that doesn't mean anything to me. So she's not necessarily, you know, that she's not helpful now in terms of that externalization. She already works for me. I'll take that box, you know, but she'll be there if it's ever needed again. You know, you never know with OCD. But um, it's really helping me in terms of, yeah, that acceptance and that compassion and being able to kind of actually practice that skill because applying those things, as we said earlier to ourselves, is not easy. It's not always easy. And I think sometimes people don't understand acceptance. They think that it means that it, they're happy with their condition. And it's not, it doesn't mean that at all. You're not kind of going, yeah, I accept it. I'm right into my life. You're just kind of going, what I'm not going to do is fight this thing. I'm not going to expend energy I don't have on 
you know, trying to trying to batter this thing because it's battering me. It's actually just kind of going, do you know what? Well, this is where I am at the minute. This is my current situation. Yes, it is affecting me. It's not great. And it's starting to learn to work from there. Because if you've got 100% energy battery and most of that's going on fighting your diagnosis or whatever, you've not got that energy left to do any recovery work. Yeah, I see. it's all self-compassion, isn't it? You know, and I think that's why so many people who have been through stuff in the mental health space really want to, you know, write about it, talk about it, share it, get yes. involved. Because once you learn to be compassionate for yourself, then you've got loads of spare compassion that you can start, you know, directing towards other other people, you know. Um, no, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I wanted to ask. You that it's not just you, you know, you kind of like, you go, bloody hell, that was so easy. If only time someone taught me that at school. And you're like, right, in that case, I'm going to help other people understand this as well. And that's where Tame and Olivia comes, I think, comes in really well because you know I don't respond particularly well to endless quotes about loving yourself you know I don't necessarily think that if I say I'm amazing 50 times in the mirror every morning that's gonna work for me you know it just we're all different and I know that the way it tapped into me was to be imaginative you know and that's where Tame and Olivia came from you know so we all have to do what works for us and I just really love the idea that I can put that out and then other people can give it a go. You know, I get amazing letters from people and they send me little drawings that they've done as well and stuff. It's lovely. Yeah, that's it. And, you know, when we're hiding these things from the world around us, you know, we're not expressing ourselves, right? And then to have an outlet, so yes. you can really express yourself and get it out there is really, really healing as well. Um, I want to yeah. talk about, speaking of um, expressing yourself, I want to talk about this film that you're working on as well, Kat. <laughs> 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 is that kind of like dominating um life at the moment it sounds like quite a project that you've undertaken I, li- I like to think it is um but in truth it's not other people do most of it and I'm kind of just swaddling around going hello what do you want me to do um so I, it's just another ridiculous thing that's happened so a few years ago I had um an article on BBC News that came out about me and Olivia and for some reason, it stayed on the homepage for almost two weeks. And it was ridiculous. It got me a lot of exposure. And one person who wrote to me was a guy called Steve Brumwell. He was lovely. He was amazing. And he'd sent me a script about OCD. And it was really hardcore. And I remember reading it and thinking, God, this guy is good. And because so much was happening then that I, you know, we never, I never really picked it up. And I think maybe he hadn't written to me back. Oh, I don't know. Something happens. And we kind of just, we said hello every now and again. But um, he messaged me earlier this year and he said, look, I've got a script. And he said, I've gone off and I've got a director. <laughs> and it's like, I've actually, yeah. And we think we've got a lead actor. Um, you're not allowed to tell anyone. That's changed now. But, um, and then we, we started talking and I came on an executive producer. And um, so my role has been to talk about OCD a lot. It's been to kind of, try and help to raise some of the funds you know we've worked hard in the OCD community we've got a wonderful company called Biohaven who do incredible things for OCD awareness um who are funding the film they're amazing we took on lead IOCDF so that's the International Obsessive Compulsive Disorder Foundation in America like the biggest international charity we stole one of their lead advocates who is a uh, a producer and director in his own right someone called Ethan Smith he's amazing he became a second executive producer with me and um we're filming in a couple of weeks so it's basically it's a short film it's only going to be nine minutes long and it's quite a surrealist out art house piece because uh, what i love about what steve has done is his decided to represent ocd in its 
most terrifying form you know he's not glorifying it Steve has OCD he was really clear that he wanted to do a good job um and go places that other places and you know whenever you see OCD represented on telly someone's washing their bloody hands or they're you know they're counting you like not again or they're color coordinated their wardrobe it could be that you know that can be OCD too but it's the stereotypical one so he was like he wanted to show the intrusive thought side. Now, if you're having intrusive thoughts about hurting someone and you're having internal compulsions, so you're not actually doing anything physical for people can see. So you might be praying to try and get rid of the fall. You might be reviewing your memories of the past to see if you're likely to do it. So you don't look other than just pensive from the outside. So the challenge of this was to try and make sure that it was clear that the obsessions and the compulsions were happening they were happening internally and that they were tortured and so there is quite a surrealist piece it's going to be an art house piece as well which for us is incredible because it's allowing us to really represent what the intrusive thoughts look like I mean there's a bit in it where it talks about um kicking pregnant women's stomachs and stuff like that you know and it just it's not going to hold back and I wouldn't necessarily say that everyone voted you should watch it because the first time I read the script I couldn't breathe but in terms of pulling people in it should be absolutely amazing I mean with um Ralph Pinerson is our lead character and I nearly fell on the floor when they told me they've managed to nab him I still don't quite know how they did it but he is I mean his career is on a ridiculous trajectory this year and I think they managed to nab him just before it happened so it's like you said you did um but he's really really passionate about it as well we're filming in a couple of weeks and what I love about it is it's about men's mental health and it's about intrusive thoughts about family you know because what you tend to find about OCD is that women are starting to be able to talk about intrusive thoughts you know it particularly helps if you know they're of a certain age maybe if they're mums you know safe looking people but you know it's always been very difficult for men um to talk about intrusive thoughts and Ralph Ineson is huge and he's got this massively deep voice and he's incredibly manly so we're hoping that like you know to get this kind of real rough-edged man to kind of show the nature of intrusive thoughts it also touches on the idea that um OCD very often runs in families you know, we're not sure, well, no one really knows the reason for OCD, but we do often find that, you know, children have it or a granddad had it or something like that, you know, and so it touches on that too. Um, it's going to be dark, but it has an ending of hope, um, which we thought was really important. We didn't want it to end sad, you know, it was about, it's about getting support. Um, and we finished filming, we've done most of our filming. Um, we filmed with Coronation Street actress, Chrissy Bone in Hackney. I felt so trendy. It's only up the road for me, but I was like, look at me, excuse me, get out of the way. I'm an executive producer. <laughs> and someone's like, what does that mean? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm only here because I'm an advocate. Um, but yeah, we've we've done all the filming apart from this last weekend, which is happening in a couple of weeks at different locations. And then after that, it's into post-production. And we're hoping it will be out early well around March but it's got to do a film festival run and then after that it will be out to the masses but what's brilliant about it is that between me and Ethan 
he's US based, I'm UK based. We're going to have a whole advocacy drive behind it. So where it will be brilliant at telling people exactly what ACE is, you know, you sit down and go, shut up, listen to this, watch this for nine minutes. There'll be no doubt about, you know, those people are not going to say I'm OCD. I clean my car every Sunday. You know, that's not going to come out of their mouth ever again, I hope. But um, it means that people who are watching it are like, Jesus, that's what's wrong with me. <laughs> who come in, who are dragged in to, to us, get appropriate signposting. And we'll be doing interviews. We'll be talking to people and, you know, about how to get self safe help and how to go up and talk to people about it, professionals and that. So we're hoping that it's a really lovely package that's going to educate and, and help yeah oh that's just beautiful isn't it to have that that support package and some ideas you know around that as well because so much of the stigma about about all sorts of mental illness is you know the media's got a lot to answer for like you say it's very um tokenistic it's very you know the same old stuff and you know you can see why there's stigma around it you can see why it's not taken seriously you can see why people you know think they have ocd because they clean their car a lot you know so um yes yeah you know uh, yeah the harder stuff out there because people are living with this stuff every single day. Right. So to, yes, you know, yes, wanna, they are. To, to get it out there and then to be able to, um, yeah, offer help afterwards and chat about it. I think that's just wonderful, mate. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to, can't wait to see it. I'll keep an eye, keep yeah. an eye on your socials for it. Kath, Thank that's, you. um, well, I've had a wonderful chat today. I mean, that's absolutely, I'm quite shocked when I saw the, saw the time then that's absolutely flown by. <laughs> what like, is the time? I have no idea. It it's bang on, bang on. Yeah, it is bang on 12 o'clock. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> so, but thank you so much for your time. I enjoyed that so, so much. And um, so good, yeah, thank just you. good luck with everything you're doing, mate. Oh, and you too. Thank you so much, Tom. Ta-da. mental podcast please like and subscribe the space star